You're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. Here on Theory and Practice, we interview people who are looking for big solutions and people who are creating powerful tools. We find the scientists asking the most interesting questions in the life sciences and the researchers in computer science who are building the machines to answer them. Today on the show, we'll hear from David Sontag, professor of electrical engineering and computer science at MIT. So stay with us as we explore questions and solutions on theory and practice. So Alex, for this episode, I got to interview David Sontag, professor of electrical engineering and computer science at MIT. That sounds amazing. We had a great conversation. When we sat down to chat, the first thing I asked him was how he got to where he is now. So I grew up in New Jersey, in Piscataway, central New Jersey, right next to the Rutgers campus. And my father is a faculty member at Rutgers. In what? In mathematics. Nowadays, he works on control theory applied to biology. And as a young kid, I was very interested in technology. So I I had a couple different companies. I was doing some consulting for the dot-com era in the late 90s, making some good money. And I was helping run a nonprofit organization during, during high school. From a young age, I was really interested in social impact, and the nonprofit was looking at how we could really connect youth across language and country barriers uh, to try to create what we called a, a country without borders of young people who could try to improve the both local and sort of global uh, situations. I spent a lot of time going to the United Nations. I spent a lot of time traveling internationally, and we created one of the world's first social networks. When was this? Uh, this is 98, 99. And what was the protocol that you used? Was it friend of a friend or something else? This was an online social network. Oh, yeah. Okay. Around the time of my sophomore year of, uh, of high school, I was doing this nonprofit work, running these companies, and I realized that I just didn't have enough time for school. So I decided to leave the confines of high school and enroll at Rutgers University, which was kind to accept me sort of right out of unfinished school. So what year in high school were you when that happened? That was the middle of my junior year. So I was studying computer science. And at the same time, I, I applied to Berkeley for the following year and continuing to do all of these other side activities. A good friend of mine at the time told me that if I wanted to have an impact in any area, I had to stop spreading myself so thin. So when I eventually got accepted to Berkeley and transferred to, to Berkeley to start my undergrad there, I dropped a lot of my side activities and really focused on my uh, undergraduate activities, diving really deep into computer science, in particular machine learning, which took me all the way through my PhD at MIT. And so tell us more about your PhD. What did you work on? Who did you work with? So my PhD was in the computer science uh, and AI lab at MIT, advised by Tomi Akula. The high-level question was, how can we build computers that can reason like humans reason? Formally, one can use mathematics to describe that question as one of probabilistic modeling, trying to understand the world in terms of random variables and relationships between those random variables and observations we get about the world as evidence about those variables and reasoning as one of probabilistic inference in those models. And so I was working on algorithms that could do that type of probabilistic inference, but circumventing a lot of the computational intractabilities that the naive formulations of it would have. What would be a kind of simple application of a lot of the work that you did? One example is in protein folding. So a very special case of protein folding is protein side chain placement, where you have a good idea of the protein backbone structure, and one is trying to figure out 
what the uh, most likely configurations of the side chains are. And so one could try to formalize that as one of a model where your variables of interest are the side chains, uh, locations, and you could describe each side chain location in some angular space. And the corresponding inference problem is to find the minimum energy configuration, in essence, to try to figure out how the side chains would be placed along that backbone structure. So if you were to talk about sort of a branch of machine learning where the techniques you're using the most, is it sort of more generative models or Bayesian networks, uh, things like that? Yeah, broadly speaking, Bayesian networks and Markov front-end fields. And where was this relative to, in time, Judeo-Pearl at this point was kind of becoming more popular? Was this sort of uh, in kind of the causal influence uh, side of things? Judeo-Pearl has been working for decades on, on the Bayesian network side of things and spending the vast majority of his efforts on the foundations of how one can formalize these models and talk about causal relationships between variables and hope to infer those from data. But the questions of how one can infer them computationally efficiently as opposed to just asking identifiability questions, if you had infinite data, is it possible? has been and still very much an unsolved problem. There had been decades of research of approximate inference algorithms that go by the names of Monte Carlo methods or variational inference. And my PhD work was really along that variational inference line of thought, but bringing techniques from theoretical computer science that would then allow us to give some guarantees for how good inference can possibly be and also allow one to try to trade off between computation time and accuracy in doing inference. And then what was the point at which you started to work more on problems in the life sciences? So right when I finished my PhD, I said, okay, this is enough, enough of focus. I've done that for eight, nine years. Uh, Now I want to get back to some of my original interests as a a young kid, uh, in particular seeing how we can use these techniques I've now been developing for social impact. And so right out of my PhD, I was lucky enough to get a faculty position at NYU. And I had one year gap between starting my faculty position and finishing my PhD um, because my, my wife, who was working at the Whitehead Institute, needed to stay one more year because she had promised uh, her advisor that she would stay two years in her job. So I went to Microsoft Research New England here in Cambridge and spent that year thinking about where was I going to start my new lab, what area of, of research. And I explored two different directions, one of which was personalized web search and the other was medicine. And that's where the, the genesis of it all began. And what was the problem that got you excited about medicine? Where did you begin? So I spent that year speaking with tens or maybe even hundreds of of different people, largely focused on people who've been for four or five decades now thinking about how can AI transform medicine and asking them hard questions about, well, what happened? How come I don't see the very clever ideas that you've worked on in the clinic today? That led me to realize that there were a number of opportunities that were going to be created now, both due to data availability and new algorithmic breakthroughs that would change the game, solve some of the problems that, that folks had trouble with back in the 60s and 70s, and also would be the basis for new research lab in machine learning because it would be a source of very interesting new theoretical questions, both due to those sort of informational interviews and also due to this second direction, which I'll tell you about in a second, it, it got me into the field. And the second direction actually came from working with a good friend of mine. When I was in high school, before I dropped out, I used to hack with a friend of mine, uh, his name is Stephen Horng. He was uh, one or two years ahead of me in high school. We both went our separate directions after high school. He went to uh, Illinois Institute of Technology to do his undergrad in computer science and then to University of Chicago for medical school. And we each continued on these different paths up until 2010 when we got together and said, okay, we've finished our education. Is there something we can do together? He was, he is an emergency medicine physician at Bethesda Deaconess Medical Center right across the river from here at MIT. 
And so in that one year, when I was at Microsoft Research New England, we started on a research project together, which we've been continuing to the day today. And that's really the in-depth experience that got me drawn into this field. So tell me about your, your work there. What, what have you guys been working on? So we started out with a very pie-in-the-sky idea of let's try to do medical diagnosis. And let's try to do medical diagnosis in one of the most challenging clinical environments that exists, which is the emergency department. Because you have a really small period of time from the time patient comes in to a few hours later when one has to decide what's going on with this patient, initiate treatment, and then decide on follow-up. Do you admit them to the hospital? Uh, Do you send them home? And so on. Especially in the United States, clinicians are working under very limited information. Uh, So not limited information, but they have limited time. Emergency departments are continuously overloaded and very subtle changes in clinical parameters that might be indicative of, for example, worsening or onset of septic shock could be missed by clinicians due to simply not having the time to look at all of the data. And so we thought that this would be an opportunity to build machine learning algorithms that you can think of like as a guardian angel behind the scenes, watching the patient data as it comes in in real time, reasoning about what's going on with the patient, and then guiding clinicians with clinical decision support. Where are you in the arc of building this? At a high level, that challenge that I described was a description of a challenge that the AI medicine field had been thinking about for decades, except that I wanted to tackle it from a new perspective, which was one of bringing in lots of data, because we had data on several hundreds of thousands of patients who had been to this emergency department in the past, and we could potentially use that data to learn parts of this reasoning model. What we immediately ran up against were two realizations. First, that most of the techniques that are most popular in machine learning are supervised machine learning algorithms that require lots of labeled data, which we simply didn't have in this emergency department context. We had tons of data, but it wasn't labeled with the things we would need. And the second realization was that a lot of the low-hanging fruit didn't require this type of reasoning. What would be low-hanging fruit? I'll give you a couple examples. The first low-hanging fruit is just getting better structured data. Imagine that you have a patient in the ER and one wants to figure out, is this patient eligible for a clinical trial? Or is this patient eligible for a clinical pathway, which is some sort of standardization of medical care, such as uh, patients who have known or suspected cellulitis, or who come in complaining of heart-related problems? And so this question of how do you trigger clinical decision support, which is in some sense hard-coded, it's an existing algorithm, we just need to know which patients to apply that algorithm to, was the core problem that we we identified was a much simpler problem to, to tackle predicting these simple clinical state variables, like does the patient have a cardiac etiology? Do they have suspected cellulitis? Are they from a nursing home? Do they have an infection? And if we could predict those variables, then you could think of that as structured data that then people can write if-then-else statements within the electronic medical record, such as if the patient has known or suspected cellulitis, then prompt the clinician with this clinical decision support tool. The second class of problems were much more predictive in nature one wants to ask, for this patient who just comes into the ER, how severe are they, right? So can we improve triage in some way? So for example, could we tell right at the time that the patient walks in that they're likely to end up in the intensive care unit? If you knew that that's what was going to happen, you might, first of all, see them sooner. Second of all, you might start alerting the ICU to make sure there's a bed ready. And third, you might just decide to transition them there sooner so that they can get the care that they're going to need at the acuity level that they need. And so questions like that 
one can get labeled data on because you could look at structured data from the electronic medical records, such as did the patient eventually enter the intensive care unit or did they enter the ICU and then get flipped to the floor or vice versa? And in some sense, that gives you the labels that one could use to try to predict these outcomes. Those were much simpler problems that one could apply machine learning to, which would still have a, a big clinical impact. You start to say that you changed the problem. How did you change the problem? So we immediately started working on some of those simpler problems where we could immediately apply the existing toolbox to it. The other question, the one of how do we get structured data such as, is this patient have known or suspected cellulitis? Are they from a nursing home? For that, we thought about it just as a predict this known quantity question. Rather than trying to do reasoning over the thousands or tens of thousands of different things that could be gone with the patient, let's start out with a small bag of things that would be useful to know about the patient, and let's look at how we can try to predict those things quickly. And that led us to the first PhD student from my group, uh, Yoni Halpern, to his PhD thesis, which looked at how one could predict those small set of clinical state variables in a way which doesn't require much effort from the clinician and in a way which is generalizable easily across institutions. The key problem which we identified that previous attempts at structuring electronic health record data had faced was that either one could try to build simple rules to extract the desired elements from the electronic health record, or one uses a supervised machine learning approach which requires some labeled data, which for the simple example of, is the patient going to be admitted to the intensive care unit, is easy to get, but for these other examples, such as, does the patient have known or suspected cellulitis, or are they from a nursing home, is much harder to get. Despite it being kind of obvious, and if you were to simply ask the nurse or the clinician caring for the patient one of these questions, they would be able to tell you the answer. It's not recorded in a structured way in the data. And so the traditional approaches of using supervised machine learning for those types of problems just were non-starters. One doesn't have the labeled data to work with. One could attempt to go label data for one institution and build a predictive model for that one institution, but then those models don't tend to generalize well to other institutions because the data is very different in those other institutions. And so one would have to then repeat that process over and over again of labeling data in each new institution, which is very expensive and very time-consuming, and I think one of the big reasons why we don't see the type of translation into, into the clinic that we might otherwise expect. This first PhD student's whole thesis was about how one could try to solve this type of machine learning problem without having labeled data. Understood. And how do you? So the insight that he had was that there's often subtle signals in the data about what you want to predict that may not be the same thing as the ground truth, but give you a good idea of what it is you're looking for. I'll give you a simple example. Suppose you want to know, does the patient have type 2 diabetes? You could look to see, does the patient have a hemoglobin A1C test with a value of, say, 6.5 or higher recorded in the last few months? You could look to see, is there a, a phrase, this patient has type 2 diabetes, written somewhere in a clinical note by a clinician about this patient. You could look to see, are there medications such as metformin or insulin that are recorded for this patient in their electronic health record. And each of these things are obvious hints that the patient might have type 2 diabetes, but no one of them by themselves could be consider equivalent to the ground truth of whether a patient has diabetes. For example, we might not have labs available for patients, or instead of quote-unquote type 2 diabetes being written in the clinical notes, an acronym like T2D might be written in the clinical note. So we can't think of any of those one things as the ground truth, but we can think of them as anchors for the ground truth. 
And one could then take these anchors, which a clinician or domain expert would specify to the learning algorithm, this is a good hint that the patient has type 2 diabetes. The learning algorithm then takes that hint, or what we're calling an anchor, and then combines it with an unsupervised learning algorithm to learn to predict the latent quantity, in this case, whether the patient actually has type 2 diabetes, using the anchor and all of the other data we have on the patient. Understood. So let's uh, kind of talk more generally for a second about your lab. So at the moment, as I understand it, you have a kind of few high-level themes in your lab. Maybe walk us through those. Sure. Two of the big themes have to do with, first, how do we improve the care of patients who are coming to the clinic today? And second, how can we take longitudinal data that's available just because of the practice of medicine? Think of either electronic health records or patient registries or health insurance claims, and use that data to learn about the practice of medicine, in particular, learn about disease progression and how treatment affects disease progression. So those are two overarching themes that guide a lot of the research that we do. And what's a problem you're especially excited about at the moment? I'll tell you about the disease progression modeling work, which is a major emphasis of our lab this year. And I'll give you as an example something that happened to me personally, which really shed light to how important some of these problems are. My mother had multiple myeloma, which is a somewhat rare blood cancer. And uh, it so happens that multiple myeloma is also heralded as one of the prime targets for precision medicine. It's believed that of the 20-plus medications that are recently on the market for multiple myeloma, that some of these medications will, in a predictable way, work better for some patients than for others. And so... When my mom was diagnosed about five years ago, my lab had already been working for quite a while on, on machine learning and healthcare. I looked around and I realized that this is, in fact, also uh, aligns very well with my research interests. And there is good data to study multiple myeloma. In particular, the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation released something called the Compass Dataset, which anyone in the world could download with just a very simple data sharing agreement. And that data set follows, it's going to be following 1,000 patients longitudinally across time with, at baseline, RNA-seq data, which gives a very good idea of what types of proteins might be expressed for this patient. We also have longitudinal data about what treatments patients are getting across time, how their cancer is, for example, how are they responding to those treatments once they reach remission, how long until they get recurrence, what types of complications they're getting due to the disease, and ultimately when they die, if they die. And so this data, I think, is really the perfect opportunity to ask questions like, for this individual patient, what's going to happen to them in the next few years? How long until their disease will progress from, say, smoldering multiple myeloma to full-blown multiple myeloma? Or what will this specific treatment do for this patient? Will the patient respond to this treatment or not? Or how will this specific patient die if they do die? At a physiological level, what would be the primary endpoint for this patient? And if one could try to understand that better, then one might be able to understand at a mechanistic level better the particular details of the disease progression, which would perhaps allow us to better target or design new treatments for this disease. Except this data is very messy. And many of the existing techniques for trying to answer questions of causality don't apply out of the box to this type of data, either because of the temporal aspects of the question or because there's simply not enough data to out-of-the-box apply the existing techniques. And so a major emphasis of our lab's efforts have been about how can we design a new set of machine learning techniques that can answer these questions from the limited data that we actually have. So go back to the causality question. 
kind of walk me through how you approach this because obviously you don't have randomization. No. So what are the key things that you need to believe about your random variables in order to feel that the causal inference around treatments and their downstream effects are real? So the, the biggest requirement is that you have observed somewhere in our data confounding factors, which are defined to be factors that influence both the treatment assignment and the outcome. So by treatment assignment, I mean affect the way that clinicians are today making their treatment decisions. And by the outcome, I mean what actually happens to the patient, for example, progression or, or, or death. At the very least, one has to hope that these confounding factors are recorded in the data in some way. But that's just a starting place. And although some of the traditional statistics literature, for example, you've mentioned work by Jadeo Pearl before, would say, okay, if you have these factors observed, if you know something about the causal graph, you can or cannot draw these causal conclusions. That doesn't immediately translate to an algorithm that you can apply because of statistical inefficiencies. So we have limited data, and because we have limited data and we might have a large number of potential confounding factors, one may not have enough data to actually draw the conclusions you might need. That leads to a whole set of new questions, which my lab has been exploring. In some sense, how can we give finite sample guarantees for causal inference? So if you think about that, how much of your lab's time is spent on the theoretical underpinnings and how much of it is spent on the applications? It's about half and half. And on the theoretical underpinning side, a lot of what you're talking about with small samples, at least to a layperson, kind of speaks to questions of overfitting and generalization and penalties for complexity. Is that a new theory that you're working out, or is it something that already exists? It is a new theory, actually. But it's a theory that, of course, can build upon some of the ideas that have long existed in machine learning. The reason why it's a slightly new theory is because when one wants to tackle a, a question of counterfactual prediction, which is what you actually need to solve in causal inference, the bar that you're comparing yourself against, that you want to compare yourself against, isn't actually observed. So let me define what I mean by counterfactuals. What we'd like to be able to answer in, let's say, this precision medicine context is, what would happen to a patient had you taken a different therapy than what was actually observed in the data? So what was observed in the data, for example, patient received medication A, we're going to call that the factual. What you might want to reason about is what would have happened had the patient taken medication B, which is the counterfactual, meaning not the factual. And so if your goal is to try to figure out what is the best treatment decision for an individual patient, what you're really interested in is the differential effect of what is the effect if you give medication A versus what is the effect if you give medication B. So for example, you might be interested in the difference of the effects of A and B. But because only medication A was observed in the data set and not medication B, you don't ever actually observe that difference. And that's the crux of the distinction between how machine learning traditionally thinks about generalization and the type of generalization that we need to do for causal or counterfactual inference. In counterfactual inference, you would like to be able to guarantee something about your generalization on this individual treatment effect, this difference between what happens under medication A or medication B, but you don't ever observe both A and B. And so you want to be able to ensure generalization of something that you never get a unbiased or even biased sample of in your data set. And that's what the challenge is. So how do you do it? Is it a new technique for regularization or, or what is it? So we're in the very early stages, I'll mention, right? So we have a couple of papers. We have, we have two ICML papers in the subject but it's really a wide open research field. Our current work thinks about how we can try to give upper bounds on what I'm calling the individual treatment effect, the difference of what would happen under medication A versus B. And these upper bounds are observable from the data. So we can't observe the true thing we care about, but we can observe a bound on it. 
And if you can observe a bound on it, then one could attempt to optimize that bound during training and regularize in order to ensure that good generalization of that bound. Right. So let me switch gears. I know that another area that you've been thinking a lot about is fairness in machine learning. Talk to us about that. So the genesis of my work in fairness in machine learning came from when I was teaching my machine learning and healthcare class at MIT a year ago. And I taught a class on fairness in machine learning in the context of machine learning healthcare because I think this is going to be a topic that we, the machine learning community, need to be thinking really deeply about, particularly in applications with such high impact as healthcare. So I wanted this to be a core part of the machine learning curriculum. And as I was teaching this material, I was recognizing a big gap in our current understanding of the field. And and that's what then led me and my students to start thinking about how to formalize fairness in a way which we could talk about and led to our upcoming NIPS paper on the subject. I would love to know how you formalize fairness. What it makes me right away think about are things like privacy, which seems like it could never be formalized, and yet there's a beautiful mathematical theory of privacy. Or maybe in an early day, the idea of formalizing information might have also seemed kind of hard to believe that that could be done. So I'm really intrigued by how you formalize fairness. There are a number of existing formalizations of fairness, and I myself am not changing any of these existing formulations. I'm actually really excited about one line of work, which is uh, based on using causal notions to just talk about fairness. So you could ask a counterfactual question like, what would happen to this person if they had a different race? And then you could talk about, you could formalize notions of fairness in terms of differences in these counterfactual predictions and so on. And there's a really rich growing literature on that topic, which I'm not actively working on now because I'm actually quite happy with the way that work is going on. Our starting point was a existing notion of of fairness, which is in itself, one could argue about its pluses and minuses, which has to do with sort of differences in predictive performance. So you could look at your positive predictive value, for example, comparing group one for group two. Uh, You could take any sort of existing error metric and quantify your error according to that metric across your different groups. And you could talk about discrepancies between those error metrics as notions of fairness or not. I think there are a lot of problems with that, but it's a notion which is very practical. It's easy to understand. And there's been a lot of work in the machine learning community studying this in the last few years. But the work in the machine learning community has been about how can one address discrepancies that you do observe? Like, how can you remove them? And the answers that have been proposed previously are usually of the nature, well, let's rerun our machine learning algorithm, but put in a constraint saying that we want these two error metrics to be the same across groups. Or a different line of work, for example, a paper by uh, Moritz Hart et al., looked at trying to randomize predictions to try to get fairness. So you might say for group one, we see that we're getting much better predictions than for group two. So what we'll do in order to try to even these out is we'll take our predictive model for group one, we'll flip a coin some of the time, and if your coin is heads, you predict randomly. If your coin is tails, you predict according to your model. And in that way, of course, you can equalize the performance metrics. But such a procedure seems nonsensical to me in a healthcare context. Imagine that you're using a predictive model to predict, say, mortality for a patient, and then you're going to be using that downstream to guide either clinical decisions board or the allocation of resources for trying to prevent the deterioration. Well, you're not just going to make your predictions worse for one group and thus possibly kill people in that group just because you have this discrepancy, right? That you would never act in that way. And so what our group did is we started to dig a bit deeper and say, well, can we try to explain why there are these discrepancies. Not try to fix it directly, but if we can give an answer to why, then one could go and try to collect better data 
to try to remove those discrepancies. And in particular, what we asked was, could one try to distinguish between what happens in the infinite data limit versus what happens with the amount of training data that you have? So if you had infinite data, would there still be a discrepancy between the two groups? If so, then your answer might be you need to go get better features for one of the groups so that you can get better predictive performance of that group. If your answer is that on the other side, that with finite data, you could sort of project out, if I was to get more data for this one group, my predictive performance would start to even out with the other group, then of course there's another obvious solution, which is trying to get more data for one of the groups. And so we came up with some statistical tests, building on tests that are well known in the statistical community for trying to tease apart these differences, which then give a very practical solution for what to do when you observe these discrepancies. All right, so let's switch gears one more time. You know, I remember when I first started med school, which was 2001, I had this kind of hope that decision support would be right around the corner. And, you know, throughout my medical training, it seems like so many of the things that doctors do could be done much better by a machine. As a cardiologist, I'll often make decisions like whether or not to put in a heart valve or whether or not to put somebody on a blood thinner and still making them in very primitive ways. Why don't we have better decision support tools in the hospital? Is it because the data is not there, because the algorithms are not there, because the business models aren't there? A little bit of each. What I've been focusing on in my lab has been the middle problem, which is that the algorithms aren't there. So, for example, the examples you gave for clinical decision support largely had to do with treatment decisions. And when one wants to try to make these treatment suggestions, you're at the end of the day trying to solve a causal inference problem, like the ones that we talked about earlier. But our existing algorithms for causal inference from observational data, as I've been trying to mention uh, throughout, are very inadequate. They require a lot of data. It's very hard to build confidence in whether they're doing the right thing because one does not have randomized control trial data necessarily to to compare against. And often we're not observing the right variables in order to be able to be confident that we're correcting for confounding that might be in the data. So I think there's a lot of research that needs to be done to tackle that core problem. But then I think there are also the other two issues you mentioned are also very important. On the implementation side, a major problem has been that these predictions are not going to be used in a vacuum, in my opinion, because often the clinician knows something that the algorithm doesn't. It might be something about patient preferences. It might be some data element, perhaps even just clinical gestalt from looking at the patient, which is not recorded in the electronic medical record. And so the key question of how can we take what the algorithm knows and combine it with what the clinician knows, I think will need to be solved in order to actually have useful algorithms for clinical decision support. Um, but it's one that's very hard to make progress on because it's difficult to formalize. And it's also one which I think a lot of the community is not, not really focusing on today. So there have been veiled attempts at tackling that problem using names of interpretability and justification, right? Can we justify our machine learning algorithms, predictions, and in that way, perhaps provide a hook in which clinicians could look at those predictions and think about how to combine them with what they know. Um, and I think much more research along that direction, but formalized in terms of this combining of knowledge would, would really help us solve that key challenge. And then in terms of business use cases, the field has been really making a lot of progress in the last few years both in terms of electronic health record companies being interested in implementing machine learning algorithms and providing APIs for them to be integrated, 
hospitals and big health systems building IT teams that are specialized in implementing, doing quality assurance and deploying machine learning algorithms. And so I think we're going to see a lot of movement on the capability side in just the next few years, which will solve a lot of the problems that we had in the previous couple of decades. Let me ask one final question. What branch of medicine do you think will first see clinical decision support using machine learning? I could imagine it might be radiology, lots of problems there. There's good training data, very advances in computer vision. Or is it more sort of things like you're describing that are kind of treatment decisions? Let me turn it around and ask you, have you not already seen clinical decision support tools derived from machine learning already in the clinic? They're paltry. So for example, um, there are machine learning algorithms that will overread ECGs. They're not very good. They should be better than they are. They're not yet trusted by physicians uh, for the most part. With radiology, there are some basic things, but not routinely in clinical practice. You're thinking a lot about diagnosis, but I think a lot of what we're going to see translated in the very short term are going to be algorithms that are invisible to you as, as a clinician. Algorithms that do some of the things that I mentioned in the very beginning of the podcast about predicting uh, structured data elements from unstructured data that could then change the way that clinicians interact with patient data. Algorithms that improve documentation and help automate that. And so I think many of these clinical workflow changes driven by machine learning, which is invisible to clinicians, are going to be the most immediate place where we'll see big impact of machine learning in healthcare. Fascinating. Thank you so much, David. Thank you for having me. David Sontag, Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at MIT. So cool that you got to have that conversation. Absolutely. As you and I both know, we attend a meetup in Boston called Hammer and Nail that brings together people with problems to solve and then people with technologies to solve them. In that spirit, do you have a hammer or nail to talk about today? I definitely do. I want to talk about a hammer that you used to not be able to buy at the store, and now you can buy it at the store, metaphorically speaking. Okay. Uh, and this is just the commoditization of a part of machine learning. So of supervised learning specifically, classification, this idea that you can like take an image and predict if it has a cat or a dog in it. That used to be actually a pretty hard thing to do. I mean, it required a lot of specialized tools. You often had to build a lot of the kind of computer code yourself. You couldn't just yeah. like download things and get it to run. I mean, obviously before the internet, there were no blog posts, but there weren't even kind of popular press or books about how to do this in a way that you could easily digest without kind of PhD level training. Sure. That is 180 from the way that it is right now. If you just do a, a Google search or whatever for how do I train a convolutional neural network to predict cats or dogs, you're going to get hundreds of articles. And they're not going to be hundreds of wrong or unuseful articles. They will be actually help you like to get stuff running and working. And then you can figure out how to specialize it to your task. So like, if you really care about predicting you know, what specific type of bird is in a, an image, like if you've got a big data set of birds, you will be able to work on your task and get off the ground without going to a university and with just kind of sitting at your computer. Okay, so make it real for me for a second. Let's yep. say that I'm a doctor. Right. And my hospital, I want to find a way to automatically find lung nodules right. in chest x-rays. Right. And so I have you know, a set of, I don't know, call it 100,000 chest x-rays, right. just making this up. What would I do next? So the first thing you'd want to do if you yourself have the expertise, you can do it. 
um, if you have, you know, no people that have the expertise, they can they can help you do it. But you want to so give let's assume it, I have a friend named Alex. Okay, okay got so, it. Uh, so I said Alex. No, I mean medical expertise. Oh, so okay. you come first. All right, all right. Um, kind of the machine learning stuff comes way way later, and okay. that's that's actually a really important thing to kind of always remember is like knowing your problem first is is key. Fair. Right. All the fancy machine learning stuff, like we kind of come in at the end and we like, you know, eat the whipped cream yep. <laughs> and eat the dessert, but we don't actually do the meat and potato stuff, to be perfectly honest. So you got to label each image. So if you want right. to predict is there a lung nodule in sure. images, you got to have a label for each of those 100,000 images. Yes, there is a lung nodule. No, there's not. Okay. So let's right. assume um, I have some cardiology fellows that I pay to Moonlight and do text search for lung nodule and then validate yes or no, there is actually one on the chest x-ray. Right. So now I find, out of my 100,000 images, yeah. maybe I find 1,000, I'm just making this up, right. that I can kind of call with reasonable confidence right. these have a lung nodule. And you actually did something really interesting there that I, I want to call out, which is you came up with a quick way of excluding lots of images. You made your labeling problem faster. Okay. Which is like, that's always an interesting thing to try to figure out, and it's always domain-specific, right? So you knew yep. that there was a quick way you could filter down images that were very unlikely to have lung nodules, or yep. to enrich for uh, images that, that did, and you use that in your labeling pipeline. Super important. Got it. Right. So that was really excellent. All right. So now I have labeled and unlabeled, and they're very unbalanced, but right. I assume that's okay. Right. And now I want to be able to train a model mm -hmm. to classify them, and also I want to have it generalized to the next patient that comes in the door. Right. Right. So, you know, again, you know, your mileage may vary, but the, the kind of general pipeline that people will take is to have those 100,000 images with however many true positives and to take an image model, which has already been trained on ImageNet, which is this very large image data set that was put together by Fei-Fei Li and colleagues at Stanford. And models that are trained to do well, like close to state-of-the-art on ImageNet, and so some of these include Inception or ResNet, um, there's, there's kind of a whole host of models that you could choose. You just take that model and you fine-tune it on so your task. Think. Exactly, yeah. right? So what you end up doing is these neural networks have lots of weights in them, lots of parameters. We've talked about CHADS before, which is a model with five parameters, the number <laughs> of your fingers. Um, these models end up having sometimes you know, millions or, or sometimes billions of parameters. You don't really want to touch most of them because most of those yep. parameters are actually capturing something about like what an image is like there's edges sure. and there's textures and there's like you know large blobby objects and so that's all kind of captured at the earlier stages of these models and you want to fine-tune the last layer the last layer that in ImageNet was like classifying if there's a cargo ship in the image or a dog of a particular breed in the image you want to change that and fine-tune yours for is there a lung nodule or not got right? it so that that can actually be a very small number of parameters that you're fine-tuning like in the low thousands Again, kind of walk me through in, in a typical CNN, how many mm -hmm. layers and how many am I removing at the end? Is it one or two? Or? It's just the one, right? So okay. you, it's called so it's chop, chopping off the head Okay, is kind of how people talk about it. And so you chop off the very last layer. And it's kind of hard to make this concrete without, you know, we can't be at the board here. But uh, the fortunate thing is this is described in so many different places in yep. such high quality that just Googling around, you, you're going to be able to get a good sense of how to do this. The kind of the idea, or at least how I think of it is, you're changing the features of your problem from being a whole image to being a much smaller set of numbers that represents sure. the essence of what's in that image, right? Okay. So you're training just a, a small model like the kind that have been around for you know hundreds of years, like linear logistic regression. You're just training that on a new input, and that input happens to be provided by a pre-trained neural network. Yep. And that's 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 like the engine of a ton 
of innovation in applications, at least, in, in supervised machine learning for images. So how much did it cost to train you know, Inception or ResNet or one of these other mm -hmm. models the first time? That's a really good question. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. One thing to keep in mind is you can't really just count the cost of training one model. right? Yeah. And so it might indeed take <clears throat> two weeks to train one of these models. And now there's competitions that basically get these models trained in like you know, 60 seconds or something really ridiculous. It's, it's, yep. it's like a, there's a drag race going on, which is like who can point a model that we right. know will work and then get it to the finish line and state-of-the-art performance as quickly yep. as possible. And the amount of compute required to do that is absolutely mind-boggling. So that's okay. kind of where we are right now is like instead of like a long-distance sprint, it's like we're doing drag racing with these models. But let's say it takes two weeks to train one of these models, which is kind of the rough order of magnitude that it used to take. You actually can't just train one because you might not have tweaked the hyperparameters correctly. Like there's all kinds of like kind of voodoo magic. That's It's not voodoo magic, but there's, there's these things called hyperparameters. You can think of them as the specific numbers in a recipe. Like do sure. you want a cup of flour or a cup and a half of flour? Like those really matter for getting a good result at the end of your recipe. And you're not going to get it right the first time. Okay. Your intuition might help, but you might have to do this hundreds of times. And so the costs of training these things can actually grow to be quite large. And there's some papers that are out there showing that some of the state-of-the-art models can end up costing, you know, really significant dollars, right? Yep. If you want absolute state-of-the-art, you need to kind of expend quite a lot of money. So would you see, or is it going on that the cloud vendors are competing with each other by building proprietary models that they sell to users as part of an API or something? That's really interesting. What's really wonderful and fascinating and kind of gets back to the commodification of machine learning is everything is open, right? So if, if you want to go train these models yourself from scratch and you've got a GPU under your desk or even eight GPUs, which is like kind of in the realm of possibility these days, you can do it yourself. Right. All the code is out there. All the data is out there. So and it ends then, up not being really a way of differentiating yourself. Yeah, there's not vendor. really lock-in like that. So, so in general, it's not like people are trying to make it a proprietary thing to have my model is better than yours because realistically, you could just build another model that's almost as good, you know, anyways. Yeah, and when you say my model is better than yours, people are fiercely competing on that kind of that they just battlefield. At the end. But they tell they tell you everything, right? Yeah. And like only recently have there been some debates about whether or not to open source stuff because there have been some groups that have thought aloud whether or not releasing a model could have adverse downstream effects. Got it. In the same way that like, if I build a technology that can be used for both good and for harm, how do I decide yeah. whether or not to release it? And people are now having these debates kind of in earnest. And there was something with OpenAI recently about Yeah, so that's, so. I think, the one that I was referring to, is there was a debate about whether or not to open source one of the models in that class of, of like a, yeah. a recent wave of releases and advances in natural language processing. And it's interesting because there's other models that are pretty close in terms of performance that are open source and that people are using. And so having a debate about one is nice and emblematic, but it, it doesn't really change the situation on the ground. But it's interesting that we're now talking about this. But correct me if I'm wrong, the debate is not so much one of commercialization or creating a differentiated product that you can sell, but more about the ethics. You have it exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. There's no real commercial considerations that I'm aware of for whether or not to release a particular machine learning model. But you know, going back to kind of commodification of machine learning, where are we at with, I'll call it machine learning as a service? You know, being able to roll up to a cloud vendor and I have a labeled data set, imaging or right. other. And basically, I just want to say, 
click go on train model right. and you know, right. then apply that to other things. Right. So like even one step before the like, hey, DIY, do it yourself, yeah. put it together. But can I just like, you know, buy the thing off the shelf? And the answer is like, yes, like that, that people are selling these things. Does it work? To my knowledge, yeah. You know, this, this kind of like auto ML yep. initiative is real and it's happening. There will always be a gap or for the foreseeable future, there will be at least some gap between you know, a person sitting with their hands on the wheel, metaphorically speaking, tweaking everything kind of by hand versus something where there's absolutely zero human intervention. There's a kind of a clean room you know, sure. notion of, of building these models. But this wasn't even a concept 10 years ago. And what does it mean for machine learnists? You know, lots of anecdotes of people right out of their PhDs getting jobs very quickly and right. you know, being very successful. Right. Do you feel that it'll rapidly be the case that the world will have access to kind of cutting edge ML without hiring, you know, the recent Stanford PhD? That's a really good question. I think we can look to other fields for examples of this. So you can go to a radio shack and you can buy kind of transistors and you can buy resistors. You can buy pieces. You can build your own radio and you've been able to do that for some amount of time. There was a time when having access to those materials was almost like a government-level secret. Sure. Right? And then, you know, hobbyist radio building became a thing. And now you can just buy radios. And, you know, unless you really like to do that, there's no cost advantage conferred. We're in, at least from what I see, an area where the hobbyist actually has an advantage. Okay. Right? And things aren't so commodified yet where you would always want to buy it off I the shelf. I can still make a better radio than Radio Shack can or whatever. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. But I guess for maybe the other example I was thinking of is, um, you know, there was a time in the 90s where the ability to make a web page. Right. Yes. Was, you know, a very different. That was very sexy. Set. Yes. Yeah, that yes. Was, you know, a very differentiated yeah. skill set. Yeah. Uh, and one could command a large salary. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much today. That's a good question. And I, honestly, I don't know the answer. I don't know where it's going. I know that some of the parts of my job that are a little bit rote and routine are yeah. going to go away. Some of them have already gone away. And so like we've talked about tuning hyperparameters and like there's a drudgery to some aspect of building these models. That's getting automated away. Yeah. And there will be a time when that kind of automation is available to absolutely everybody. Right now, if you kind of know where to look and you spent the time to you know set these things up and you're willing to spend the compute, you can have it. But it will be uh, you know, not even a second thought in the future. And so that part of my job that I don't particularly enjoy will disappear. And, you know, if what an application needs is new models and kind of new insights, that's going to be the domain of humans as far as I can see, right? But if you have a well-defined task and it has been solved before and you need to kind of tweak it, that's going to be automated. I mean, you know, going back to the life sciences... So I started med school in 2001, which mm-hmm. was, the, was the year the genome was the first release. Wow, that genome. must have been pretty incredibly exciting. It was. Did, actually, you, did you start because of that? Yeah, well, actually, that's why I left math. I was at Cambridge when the genome project was ramping up, right. and the Sanger was a big center of excellence, and I kind of got exposed to the world of genomics and had always thought about going to med school and kind of made the leap of faith that if you liked math, that there would be interesting things in medicine in my lifetime. So I started med school in 2001, the year the genome was sequenced, and downloaded the first build, and now we're on, you know, 38. So a lot has happened since. But kind of the arc of that field was, for a long time, there were a small number of problems that were universally agreed to be hard and important. So things like protein folding, motif finding, clustering microarray data. And the field kind of stagnated for a while, and then a generation of people came online that could actually state 
new biological problems in a way that could be addressed with genomics or, or other sort of computing technologies. One of my intellectual heroes is a guy named Vamsi Mutha who works on mitochondria. And he had this kind of amazing example of a data set of muscle biopsies and no gene was statistically significantly upregulated or downregulated. And he had the idea of instead of looking at one gene at a time, looking at sets of genes. And, and sure enough, he found something very interesting. And then that spawned generations of people doing an epsilon better. Right. But it was the skill set of being able to take a problem and turn it into something that could be addressed. Right. What I anticipate, and I'm curious if you agree with this, is that biology is now entering a moment where the ML is commodified, but the ability to state a biological Absolutely. problem. I, I yeah. can't agree with you more. Just to talk about kind of like generations and the kind of generation that I'm from, like GitHub didn't exist before I started programming computers, and then it did. And GitHub is this almost a social network yeah, <laughs> uh, for programmers and, and for code. And I kind of grew up, you know, when I started really kind of doing this stuff seriously, expecting to find somebody has at least thought about a particular problem before and borrowing code, remixing it. And, like, that's kind of the yeah. the the milieu that, like, you know, me and my peers are in, which is, like, somebody's thought of this, and I can always be building off of what somebody else has done, and I can always get a jump start to work on a particular thing. So if I just have a new idea, a new application area, it's not doubly hard to think about both, like, hey, what's the problem I want to solve, and also what are the tools I'm going to build? Yep. But I'm just going to assume right. that I'm going to find at least a good starting place for the tools, and I'll improve them if I need to. That's a super important feature, yes. I guess, of like the people that are now kind of taking professorships in, in biology, because they, they are imagining experiments that you would not have done unless you had assumed that statistics and machine learning and compute were going to be there waiting for you at the end of the experiment. So, you know, a good example of this is some of the sparse coding work that's going on with sequencing. We're used to this idea of like going to look for how many copies of a single gene are being expressed. Well, it turns out, and I think you know this very well, that you can actually make it a little bit more muddled. And you can look yeah. at you know, how often a linear combination of many different genes are expressed and do that for many different linear combinations. And you can actually decode individual levels of expression for individual genes. Yep, right? yep, yep. And that's incredible. Yep. It also is something that you would get fired for doing right. <laughs> unless you really knew that downstream right. there are these techniques that would help you decode these things. That's right. It's I mean, incredible. Right? Yeah, I know. It's an example of like the data generation was built with compressed sensing and other things in mind. Right. Yeah. Right. And so like there's going to be many, many more examples of that and the creativity that I expect to come out just because of the proximity of these different ideas like biology and machine learning. We're going to see things that are just like shocking right just totally brilliant and beautiful and wonderful remixes and total new inventions i think it's going to be really really fascinating this is an amazing discussion my friend i think that wraps it up for this episode of theory and practice i'm alex wilchko and i'm anthony philipakis the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent official policy or the position of gv google or any of their respective affiliates including alphabet the hosts' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither GV nor Google nor any of their respective affiliates warrant their completeness or accuracy, and they should not be relied upon as such. Got a question or a comment? Email us at theoryandpractice at gv.com.